Coming up in two minutes is episode number seven of the Good Grief, Good God Show, hosted by Grammy nominee, Emmy award-winning hit songwriter of 15 top 10 songs, including nine number ones, Brad Warren of the Warren Brothers. I'm producer Matt Pivato. Join Brad monthly on the first and third Tuesdays on your favorite audio platform or in video on YouTube for raw, honest conversation about surviving things that suck. For today's episode, Brad welcomes the only artist to win three times the Grammy for Best Rock Gospel Album, Ashley Cleveland. Over the past 30 years, Ashley has recorded nearly a dozen records and contributed background vocals on over 300 albums. She may not be a household name, but make no doubt about it, she is one of the most well-respected musicians in the business. In addition to music, she authored her memoir entitled Little Black Sheep in 2013. In 2018, she was the subject of a documentary titled Who is the Girl? The Story of Ashley Cleveland. In both the book and documentary, Ashley shares her story of a dysfunctional childhood and addiction, but most importantly, the redemption through her faith in God. Brad can relate to most of Ashley's story, especially addiction, finding the good in grief, and being a recovering alcoholic. Ashley is about as raw and honest as they come, everything Brad knows and loves. Before we begin, a few quick housekeeping notes. For more information about today's guest and the show, check the description where you'll find a clickable link to visit goodgriefgoodgodshow.com. Lastly, if you'd like to support the show, please hit that subscribe button and give us a big old five-star review. On the behalf of Brad's wife, Michelle, and segment producer and guest booker, Lisa Bolt, thank you for tuning in. And now, here's today's episode. The Good Grief, Good God Show is brought to you in loving memory of Sage Michael Warren. Here's so, the miracle so in all of this. So do I get a cigar? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. sure, sure. The miracle in all of this is that my wife actually just took all the furniture out of her room and had us put microphones and uh, things that, in that, that is a That's a labor of love. <laughs> uh, it is. It is. It is absolutely. She didn't have to go find a matching carpet and all. But that is really funny. <laughs> covered up the TV that was there. <laughs> a, but it, what a beautiful setting, though. Well, first of all, your willingness. You don't have a clue what I'm doing. And, and you just, but yeah. you're doing it. Yeah, so. that's great. I mean, I, I'm I'm honored that you know, just just right up your wheelhouse. So, this is well. I always at this point in my life, I assume if people and and I'm always, it's like now I I keep thinking I'm I'm getting ready to retire, and then it's then I get all this, just different things come in, and I just think. Well, if people are asking me, I must have something to bring to, the, or they wouldn't, because at this point, I'm not. I'm not out, you know, marketing myself. So it's interesting how that works. Like, uh, it's great. if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. Uh, I was really kind of, you know, a year and a half ago. I'm like, okay, I lost a son. Okay, just winding down a little bit. I'm gonna write last. We bought a house in Florida. We we go, love to go down there. It's a place of peace. I'm like, okay, just kind of split time. And it has been. I literally have like four jobs right now, and and. And everything that you can imagine going on, but it's being willing, being willing. And I think it probably it's your, your soul gets fed a lot more. It does. And that, that's, that's the kind of, you know, the, there's a poet named David White who talks about, he, he was, um, he was working some nonprofit, he was directing some nonprofit program that was just super worthy. And he, but it was, he was so exhausted all the time. And he went to his mentor and he said, you know, the mentor is like a monk. And he said, 
I don't think the opposite of exhaustion is rest. I think the opposite of exhaustion is wholeheartedness. So when you're doing the thing that you're meant to do, it, it somehow is life-giving to where it's not that you don't still need rest and time away, but it just hits you differently. And the rest and time away is not the goal. It's just a, like a little eye of the hurricane in your uh, schedule. It's, it is actually rest. And, and instead of yes. that goal being yeah. to just sit there and rot yeah. away in a beach chair with a cigar, which was kind of my plan, <laughs> it's going to be a little siesta for me. I know I still reserve the right to do that. It's like, I may take up Marlboros again. You know? like, I, I, what's I, it going to do? Kill me? <laughs> I actually use that same verbiage. I say, I reserve the right to freak out, lose my mind, and sell everything and move to that little house in Florida and just like start a paper route. I reserve right. the right. Yeah, yeah. And just it's reserving comforting. the right. <laughs> Oh, makes it <laughs> makes everything okay because when it gets too crazy i'm like what if i just don't show up for yeah, anything ever again yeah will yeah. the world continue yes. to turn yes yes <laughs> yes it will i mean self-importantizing uh the 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 trivial these days is i'm just i have been able to wipe away a lot of things on my schedule that are fun and they're with good people and they're good probably and they might be good for my career which i probably should be paying more attention to right now I just can't bring myself to care. I know. I know. And somehow your career, I, I think in a way, my neglect has really helped my career. <laughs> you come That's across so as very weird. cool, by the way. <laughs> you don't seem to care. About I do not care. I, I mean, you know, that's the beauty of being older. It's like your give a shitter just goes away. Gone. <laughs> and the fact that you kind of play guitar like Keith Richards makes you really cool. You know oh, what I mean? Thank that? you. Yeah. Well. That's not mm. a... You, yeah, I love that. Um, I'll take it. The fact that you even can, like, know how Keith Richards plays puts uh, well, you in a certain you know, category. I think people sort of fall, I mean, people like us, we fall into two categories. And it's not that we don't all love the Beatles and the Stones, but we do fall into one I'm slot. Stones, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm And Stones. when it's the Stones... You love the Beatles, but you're defined by the Stones. Totally. Yeah. I, am, I am. I probably know more Beatles songs in a way, but I am Stones right. guy. I, yeah. If totally. I were to aspire to yeah. playing. Yeah. Fa favorite Keith Richards quote. Oh, I don't even have a, qu a favorite quote. One of my, well, okay. So the one that Tell comes me. to my mind is, um, I believe I'm going to heaven. I just think I'm in for a bit of a spanking. <laughs> which is amazing that's really I, good I actually agree with him <laughs> that is so good there's a story and we'll, we'll get to serious things in a minute but you're just making me think about Keith. so bobby keys was the sax player well i knew Stones. bobby but so yeah because he lived here he lived yeah. here and we were friends and he would come play on our demos and, and hang out to be honest we had the same drug dealer for a while but he was a great guy sounds right um yeah. and he wouldn't if he'd be cool with me saying that if he was if he was still around um but he he said that they that he and Keith after a tour would just go to this little like <clears throat> like an alcoholic bed and breakfast place, some kind of little <laughs> pub hotel thing out in the middle of somewhere in Europe, Ireland or Scotland or something in the middle of nowhere. And they would just decompress from the road. They would party less, but they would party and then work themselves down to where they could go back home and just be people because it's like they're yeah. on stun, I assume. Yeah. And um, 
So apparently they had had some problem or had been talking about closing down. They didn't know whatever. And the following year after the tour, Bobby said he and Keith are sitting at a table and the, at at this little place and uh, the bill came and um, Keith said, nah, uh, Keith tried to give his card to them. And whoever was there said, no, no, your money's no good here. And he's like, no, no, I I love this place. I love this place. I want to support you. Take it, take it. And they're like, no, no, Mr. Richards, your money's no good here. And he's like, no, I, I want to pay. I want, want to pay the money. Please take it. And they're like, no, you don't understand. You bought this place last year. You own it. <laughs> Your money is literally no good here. <laughs> That's hilarious. In a blackout, you. <laughs> you bought this place. That's when you have too much, too much money and not enough time. Too many. Yeah, there's, well, he's kind of, it's kind of amazing he's alive. Him there's something about Wood. the honesty he lives with, though, I think that is a, is a real key. Um, Bobby Keys also said that after a shows, the two of them would go to a pool hall and nobody would bother them. They'd hang out with the locals and drink. And he said Mick would leave with five security guards and everyone would attack him. And I do think we in the music business can present one scenario. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. I know. Kenny... Kenny's just worked on um, Bonnie Raitt's new record, and um, she's pretty neurotic about that stuff, too. And it's kind of like, you know, I can't have, you know, no, you can't, no, I can't be, quote, I can't be photoed, I can't be, I can't, you know, it's got to be super, like, curated all the time. And where you just think, I couldn't live that way. There's a freedom to apathy. <laughs> really. I enjoy not. And, and by the way, I'm in the business, but I'm not a star. So I, yeah. I, I well, can honestly. Me too. I love it. It's like, I just, you know. I have some friends that are actual stars and there's a, there is a, um, there are challenges that come with that, but there is a way to, I guess some guys that do it pretty good. You can be a really, really regular guy, gal. And, um, and then just have certain boundaries and, you know, set up certain things. So I want to talk about your book, but first, first I want to read, I, I get a quote for everyone that comes on here. That's, that's my homework. Okay. I, I love quotes. I always say that I love quotes. I probably need to stop saying that, but the quote I found for you was a Theodore Roosevelt quote, something that makes me think about you. Uh, courage isn't the strength to go on. It's going on when you don't have the strength. And that is, uh, that's Theodore Roosevelt. And it just made me think, I want you to talk about you. I want to hear everything. I want you to talk about, I read your book long before I met you. That's right. Um, and, um, I can't remember who gave it to me, but I, it was awesome. I couldn't put it down. I think I read it in like a week and it was awesome. And so I, I, I want you to tell me what part of your story you're comfortable with. <laughs> Oh gosh! Well, it's uh, in a book. You're comfortable you know, with it, well, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not particularly. I, I should probably be more judicious about <laughs> what I do and don't tell. I've just kind of. That's I, not the way you. I roll. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm. I'm. I'm far more in danger of oversharing. But, um, you know, uh, I think relative. To, to what you're going after here in terms of grief. I'm from Knoxville, and I was born into kind of an upper-middle-class alcoholic dynasty. Mm-hmm. So it was really hard to, to not encounter an al- So both my parents, alcoholics, 
uh, extended family members. And um, I think, you know, the, my family, and there, were, there was more to it than that. My father was gay and, and very much in the closet and kind of felt like he could compartmentalize his life and, and like have his family over here sort of as a beard and then have his real life over here where he was actually himself. And, and clearly that wasn't going to work. So... How old were you in the, that when you? So my family, my parents divorced when I was about in kindergarten. But there was prior to that, I think when you live in an environment where there is a lot of drinking and a lot of secrets, because my father's sort of solution to anything was just clam up. He was really good at the silent treatment. And, and it would go on for long, long periods of time. So Baptist? No, he was Presbyterian, you know, um, but um, but I think he came from a culture, you know, like he had a very domineering mother uh, and, a, and a silent father. So it's, you know, mm -hmm. he came by it, honestly, and he was doing the best he knew how to do. I mean, I, I, I think it took the book to understand that for me anyway, because when you're sort of the recipient of that, it, you take it a lot harder. But um I, I think when, when, when all of that started to collapse, you know, when you're the kid, especially when you can't quite identify what's happening, it's not like anybody was beating, mm -hmm. beating on my mother or, you know, there wasn't obvious problems. And my parents were both very beautiful and very well put together. My dad was an architect, interior designer. And so they lived in beautiful places. They dressed beautifully. They turned out, you know, they, they knew how to perform. And so for me, it was, you know, I'm kind of the scapegoat, the one that acts out all the pain and dysfunction of the family, which I seem to be born adept at, but it's that feeling of, I know, something is really wrong. I don't know what it is. It's probably me because I was the one getting in trouble all the time, you know, and, and you'd like, I'm a huge animal lover. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, my kids all left home. So I got tons of dogs mm -hmm. and, and it's just my, the way I roll. But, ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We've had this talk. Um, and, uh, but you could kind of see the, the pain and suffering of our family in that all our pets came to bad ends because nobody was paying attention. Everybody was just trying to survive. And so, um, you know, I, and then after they divorced, my mother got a job offer in, uh, uh, Northern California in, in the San Francisco Bay area. So we moved from Knoxville, Tennessee, um, which is, you know, it's probably the third largest city in Tennessee, but it's a town. Mm -hmm. At least yeah. it was back yeah. then. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And it's a southern water town. tower. Yeah, yeah. No set. Yeah. <laughs> and um, to San Francisco, which is fully 15 or 20 years ahead of anything. I mean, it was like time travel to Mars or something, you know, and I'm I'm this southern kid. I talk like this and 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 I'm already brokenhearted. I'm already mad. And 
you know, I was like a powder keg and they, you know, you go to a new place and you know how kids are. They, you, I was like an exotic for five minutes where it's like a oh, fun toy. Yeah. Fun yeah. toy. But I, they tired of me really quickly. And, and then it was just horrendous. It really was. I mean, I have a distinct memory in sixth grade of being on the playground and having the entire sixth grade class standing in a circle around me, throwing rocks at me. Ooh. And, um, and then, and I finally, you know, they blew the whistle and I ran into the bathroom and like this, the most despised kid in the sixth grade. And I, I always remembered him because he pulled all his eyelashes out. He came into the girl's bathroom to console me. And I thought, this is where I am on the totem pole. It's a new this bottom. Is, yeah. It's come to this. So. Uh, it's funny in, 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 in the, you know, now in the long run, like you are a perfect mix of Knoxville and San Francisco. It's awesome. <laughs> but as a kid, you don't get, yeah, it's just, uh, it, it was that, so, so not awesome. The things it that give us like, character <laughs> later suck at the time. They just do all of them. Oh, it was terrible. And, uh, and then my mother remarried a man who did not like me either. So, you know, it was just inevitable that I was going to start getting in trouble, start smoking cigarettes, start sneaking out, find the bad kids, you know, whoever they were and do whatever they were doing. And um, and that went on for a while. And my stepfather finally said, you know. It's her or me. And so I, I was sent back to live with my father in Knoxville, like when I was a junior in high school. But, you know, I'm like 16 years old. The drinking age in Knoxville is 18. And my father has no intention of parenting. He doesn't <laughs> even know what it is, really. <laughs> so he says, he makes these grand pronouncements like, you know, um, we're going to get you a car so you can get back and forth to school. I said, okay. And he goes, and uh, we'll just... You know, you take care of, of your responsibilities and I'm going to go to work every day and then we'll have dinner at night. And uh, I thought, things are looking up. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it was just my ticket to go do anything. Uh, you know, I think I missed 55 days of school. I can imagine. My senior year, what was the point? Of, you know, and they graduated me, I think, just to get rid of me. So, you know, and I had um, <laughs> this it's just it was just that typical thing of developing your alcoholism above all else. Oh, yeah. And my father was an alcoholic. So he, you know, once when I got close to 18, he let me drink with him. And, you know, I was registered at the University of Tennessee, but, you know, I, and I may have attended each class one time. But, but the great thing that happened to me at UT was, um, well, it was actually two things. I met Pam Tillis, who also was more or less registered at UT. And back then, the little Cumberland strip that ran through the campus was just nothing but music clubs. They were little restaurants, but they had like a little stage. And mm -hmm. 
So Pam and I met shortly after she came to town and we put together a folk duo and we just started. I didn't. How did I not know that? Was that in the book? I must have forgotten. That. Yeah. I and love they, Pam. She's awesome. I do too. And she's my oldest friend here. So she was. And then eventually the way I got to Nashville was she offered me a place to live. But what I, you know, I dropped out of school. Pam and I played for a couple of years. I dropped out of school. I went and played up and down the Northern California coastline. I, you know, I was just playing in clubs all the time. And that's really where I learned to play. And Pam was really the first person that suggested I, you could, I could be a songwriter. I thought you had to get permission from somebody to do that. You know, I, it just seemed, because in my generation, there weren't that many artists an album release was a big deal. It was vinyl. It was a big disc. And, you to know, and, you didn't, and nobody had a home studio. It's like, it just seemed, the recording industry seemed mysterious and definitely far away, definitely far away from Knoxville. So, you know, but Pam and I, you know, Mel, her father had a, had a publishing company and she said, let's write a song. And it's like, what? <laughs> she said, yeah. And he took one of our songs and nothing ever came of it, but he really liked it. And um, that first little taste of confidence is so important. Oh, my. Uh, well, I, that was it. It was like, oh, my God, I'm a songwriter. You know, that's all it took. And um, I, uh, you know, I went back to California. I was played in a few bands, played in clubs by myself and and drank and took drugs in a very life-threatening, destructive way. And um, that went on for, for about 10 years. And then I got pregnant. And, um, and that really, you know, that was a few years before I even thought about recovery. But I, I really think my pregnancy, for me, was kind of the beginning of faith and the beginning of my recovery, mm. even though I didn't know it. And... Um, you know, back then, too, there were no treatment centers. And to me, I thought, well, AA, that's for convicts people and home, homeless people. Yeah, exactly. Rich. That's for people that are somewhere else. You know, I mean, I'm just sheer ignorance. And um, so I just kind of white knuckled my way through my pregnancy. But I didn't, you know, I was an addict. And so I had some very bad weekends. Um and I just assumed, you know, you t we were talking earlier about, you know, thinking God has, has set aside all his worst <laughs> punishments. I, I fully expected that. And, I, you know, because I thought it's one thing for me to hurt myself. It's another thing entirely to hurt other people, especially this little baby. I mean, and... So I just assumed I'd have a baby that was compromised in every way, and and it would, she would be a f visible example of what a piece of shit I was. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really believed I firmly, and I didn't have much self esteem to begin with, so it was easy for me to sit in that lane, and that was, you know, I I, I will say this. My family was pretty amazing. Uh, you know, my mother and father, neither one of them were recovering, but they they, they showed up, you know. They, my mom, I, I was not with my daughters. I didn't know she was my daughter then, but 
I, I was not with her father, and so my mother went through the pregnancy with me. And, and I had a C-section, and I thought about adoption, but, you know, there's it's like all of a sudden, I, I think one of the things that is really true when you grow up in a broken family and when you grow up in, in the isolation of addiction is, is the isolation. There's, I mean, there's a profound sense of loneliness. And um, at least I had that. And all of a sudden, I'm not alone anymore. There's this little person mm -hmm. rolling around inside of me. And I'm thinking, there is, uh, and yet, I, you know, so there's that on the one hand. And on the other hand, I'm thinking, I have, I'm, the worst possible candidate to be a mother. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I have no, I have nothing to offer this little person. Um, but at the end of the day, I just could not give her up. And and my family said, "We will come alongside you and help you," which they did. And um, uh, so when I had her. You know, once again, I just thought, I don't know what I'm in for. I may have a really rough ride. She may have disabilities. She may need things that I don't, you know, I don't even know the basics. <laughs> she may need things yeah. far beyond those mm -hmm. basics. But but I thought, okay, I want to learn how to do this. I, You know, I'll get help. I'll, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and what was the, I, I just want you to tell about the moment that, that when you, when well, God when said I to went, you. so I went through. So when I went into labor, I ended up uh, in a little tiny hospital where my mother and stepfather lived in a little town called Petaluma, which is about forty-five minutes north of San Francisco. And um, I, uh, I had a C-section, and it just happened that day that there was. Uh, no one in the recovery room where you go after you've been anesthetized. And, and so I was kind of in there by myself, but I had a C-section. I was kind of out of it uh, when she was born. So I just had this very blurry memory of this little tiny person and they put a little hat on her and whisked her away. So I didn't know anything about anything. And I go into the to uh, recovery and um, a couple of hours later, my mother comes in and says, she is so beautiful. And I said, Are, I said, well, is she all right? And she said, oh yeah, she's perfect. You're expecting her to have two heads at the time and yeah. Well, yeah, or not be able to breathe on her own or something, anything, you know. And and she said, no, she's great. She's doing just great. And and then my mom leaves and I'm laying there thinking, how can that be? How can she be great? There's no way she's great. And that's, you know, and I and I will preface this by saying I grew up in a family as as much as we were all a wreck. Everybody sort of had this faith, and so and we went. We belonged to a church, and I think it was more of a social ID in in some regards. Although I think my mother had a very genuine faith, and um, but it was their God, 
you know, and I just sort of naturally believed because it was what I was given, but I didn't, you know, I don't know. I was afraid of God. I was afraid of, of interacting with God and, you know, kind of spent most of my first 20 years just running. And so I, you know, I'm just laying there thinking this is impossible. And I felt overwhelmed by the, the spirit, by what I believe is the spirit of the Lord is like pulling back this invisible curtain and just leaning down to me and saying, see, I'm not who you think I am. And I thought, no kidding. And then I realized, you know, I, I have no idea who you are. And that's, that for me was the beginning. Yeah. It's like, because when I left that hospital, I left with a baby, but I left with something else. I left knowing for no good reason that I knew of, I was loved. And mm -hmm. it just did, it made no sense to me. And so I thought, I have no, I don't know what this is. And to be honest with you, you know, I drank for two more years, uh, yeah. you know, because I wasn't, I didn't have the courage to find out, honestly. But, but I never could get away from it. It's, you know, that people talk about the hound of heaven. There, there it was for me. That was the foundation that was laid. It's funny to me because we think, um, well, we think we earn all of the things that happen to us. We think we earn the good things by being good. And we think we earn the bad things by being bad. So when the thing happens and if it's bad, I'm looking at what I did wrong. And if it's good, I'm patting myself on the back for what I did right and thinking I have all the answers. Um, my, my, my sweet wonderful Christian mother. When I was three years old, I was in the bathtub. I'll never forget because it's where I accepted Christ. Three years old in the bathtub. And she told me as she was cleaning me, if you die tonight and you haven't accepted Jesus, you're going to go to hell. Oh, that happened. I promise. <clears throat> and she'll, she's very healthy and alive and she'll see this. And she, and to her credit, she believed that. So she really wanted me to go to heaven. And uh, at that moment, I did too, you know? So I'm like, hey, <laughs> sign me up, coach. <laughs> so you know, I'm like, okay, what? hey, you tell me, what, whatever we got to do here. And um, and I lived in fear for the next, well, I drug that fear on into, right into treatment, <laughs> right into rehab. That it's funny to me too, that the fear of hell that I had that night and I mean, we also, with the movies, the thief in the night and all the rapture movies is craziness. Um, it's sweet people, amazing people, but craziness involved in a religion, but carrying that on into life. And it never, the fear never stopped me from doing Coke or drinking my face off or lying to everyone I met or becoming a complete piece of shit. But I still had the fear. I carried it there and it maybe was fearful at, at three years old, but it's funny. And when you, when the first time I heard you share, by the way, my son who passed age, we saw you together <clears throat> at a meeting, share your story at Cumberland Heights on music row, which is amazing. It was the best year of his life. And so we were, we shared that it was, it was awesome. And I never forgot that line. I'm not who you think I am because I didn't have the exact moment, but I went, yeah, that's it. When I got sober, I went, God's like, hey, I've been here the whole time. I've been, I've been getting some false advertising, you know, around. 
and good people that wanted me to have God, but it was always misrepresented. And, and I don't even say misrepresented in their hearts or minds, but for me, what they were selling, I wasn't capable of buying. And I had to find it, you know, I found it in the, through a side door or maybe the basement well, door. I would argue no one's capable. I mean, people sign on, but I'll just speak for myself. It's like love changed me. The end. <laughs> yeah. Rules, those are made to be broken. You know, I mean, it's like everything else is up for grabs, but you encounter the love of Jesus and it does something to you to where you just think, okay, it's like Peter, where else are we going to go? The unearned love, because if we have earned love, yes. we think we can do more of that. Right. To get that love, <clears throat> that unconditional, I've yeah. deep. Then you're deep, under the lash. Then you're under the lash. So I've deep dove into, into near death experiences and wonderful heaven experiences. There's a book, uh, Mary C. Neal has got a couple books, a lady that had a total heaven experience. And um, <clears throat> one of the main things that people that have had near death heaven experiences, it's so consistent across denominations, religions, to be honest, and worldwide is that they feel a feeling of unconditional love, not for something that they've done, not for anything, but just for being born, just for being there, that soul. And that, that's the kind of, we don't understand that because <clears throat> we, I earned everything bad and everything good. Everything I got was a result of what I had done before. And it's really kind of flattening, humbling when you finally feel, oh, I'm just love for just being here. So how do I do more of this? I just be here more? And actually, that's not a terrible idea. <laughs> Be here more. <laughs> you know? It's a great idea. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah. So I, I, you know, I, I think I came back to Nashville and carried on. And, and when I did finally throw in the towel, it was because my family intervened on me and put me in a hospital. And I think Becca, my daughter, was two. Um. But, you know, and I, I don't know that I would have surrendered if it hadn't been for her. So in that way, she saved my life. So I, it because I really I think part of the problem for me was I knew I was loved, but I did not care about myself on any level. You know, I just thought I I don't think I can face I don't know how to live. I don't think I can face the world without a bottle. I just don't think I can. It's funny you say that because Sage is the reason I got sober. <clears throat> like um, my wonderful wife uh, at the time, I just blamed her because <laughs> you got to blame somebody. Um, I have two other sons that are amazing and um, they're younger. And so they are important, but that kid, that particular kid, the one who's not here. So I have to, when I look for his purpose, it's all around. There's so much, but that was the, that was the thing. Cause he big brown eyes and he'd look at me and I knew I'm like, man, I'm everything to this kid. So I can be everything bad or I can be everything good. And literally that, I mean, a combination of things, There's certainly my wife and my other sons and my, my family and, and just life in general point you there. But that, if I had to pick one person, what's the one person most responsible for you being sober? It was my old, my first son. And uh, there's just something about that. <clears throat> this is a responsibility here, whether you like it or not. And you can't drop it off somewhere. When the kid's not there, the responsibility remains. And, and um, 
I just got, yeah, it's, it's something I actually love more than I love myself. You hated yourself. I love myself. We wound up in the same place. It's, and I don't know that I love myself. I just maybe knew that I was just afraid of discomfort of any kind and wanted to find someone to blame. It's all kind of similar. I think so. I mean, I think it just gets us, it's whatever it is itself, mm -hmm. you know, it just, we're just focused right here all, all day long. It's like, you well, the know, the piece of shit, the world revolves yeah, around. Yeah. 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 And there was this, there was a, um, there was a Bible teacher. My mother used to listen to AM radio, all the Bible teachers. And there was a guy named A.W. Tozier, and he used to say, self, whether swaggering or groveling, is still an abomination to the Lord. It's <laughs> <laughs> like the language doesn't really sit well with me, but it's true. You know, it's really true. Self. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my falsely swaggering self. Yeah, certainly mine. And uh, so you've been sober how long now? Uh, just turned uh, just got through my 25th year so yeah wow. just and that's so I, I i but i started getting sober in 1984 so that's when i went to the hospital and i got out of the hospital and back then it was literally a hospital because there were no treatment centers so they put they started this like experimental treatment center in the unused wing of a hospital and it was so antiseptic and horrible, but like the most exciting thing every day was the candy cart, you know? Because you're missing all that sugar from the yes, booze. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, and I remembered just like a sad sack walking around the parking lot thinking, I'll never be happy again. I'm never, I'll certainly never have fun like, again. I'm never going to laugh again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Certainly. And, you know, I had no idea what was ahead, but, the, and, and, and honestly, I did not come out of there with a lot of surrender. I, I, I stopped drinking for about seven years because for Becca really, but you know, I, I was, because of my experiences in grade school as a kid, I hated groups where I didn't have some kind of control or, or, a an assigned role, usually on a stage, you know, where I could be in charge on a, on some level. And so to just walk into a group of strangers where everybody's coming from the same place, I, I couldn't do it. And so fortunately for me in Nashville back then, a lot, all of a sudden recovery was super vogue, mm. you know, I mean, everybody was doing it. And so like once I went on, on the rare occasions, I would go to a meeting. Like once I walked into a little meeting on music row in this tiny room and here come Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings, like bigger than life, literally in this room that seats about 12 people. And they're, you know, and they totally take over and they cross talk and they don't observe any of the AA protocol. And everybody's just so excited. They're just sitting there just saying nothing. <laughs> it's like, or just to be in the room with them, you know, but, um, but so I had lots of friends that were not drinking and that helped me, you know, but I'd never, I wouldn't go to meetings. If I got a sponsor, I probably called her once and that was it. I didn't, I didn't really work the steps. I didn't do anything, you know? And then, 
when I was in my 30s, I, I married Kenny, my husband, and he's not an addict. He's just one of those people that can drink half a glass of wine and walk away. It's just Completely. It's just sickening. <laughs> it's just sickening. What is that? What is all that about? That's what I say. It's like, why? With my wife, it's like, you're not going to finish that glass of wine? Yeah. I'm like, no, you have to slug that. Yeah. No, I don't slug yeah. things. No, yeah. you have to yeah. slug. I can't yeah. leave it. I never could leave a gla- anyone's glass. I just stop by other people's tables and yeah. finish off for them. This Glasses have to be empty when they're done. So, yeah, yeah. Kenny's one of those. He is. How can so, you play guitar like that without being an alcoholic? I don't, I don't get know. it. He's got other problems. <laughs> okay, I mean, good. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Rest assured. Everybody's got an ism or so. Everybody's got something. But um, no, and so I, you know, I thought by then, you know, I'd gotten involved in a church. I'd uh, had a ton of therapy. I had friends in the program. You know, I was, you know, Working my, I had my career was really going, and um, I thought, you know, I've had so much help at this point. I bet I'm fixed. I bet I'm cured. I've so, graduated. I've, yeah, graduated from yes. Recovery. In fact, I was in a, I was in a, um, I was in a little music row group with all these other musicians who were all horrible. Um, addicts, just like me. And we had a therapist and we, we were all doing group. And, um, when the group ended, we wanted to have t-shirts made. The therapist's name was Carl, cured by Carl. (laughs) But, you know, Keith Whitley was in that group. So there you go. You know, it's like, it is a, a vicious disease, but I, you know, it took me a while to understand that. So I, I just decided that I could, Kenny was, you know, he was moderate. I could be moderate too. Mm. And did he, was he aware enough of what was going on? Oh, to know he that? was so aware. <laughs> no, no, but I mean to say, hey, don't try this. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, well, and it it was, so I spent the next six years off and on because I had two pregnancies. So I, my whole thing was proving I was a really good citizen. So like I didn't drink when I was pregnant. I, um, you know, I would really rein it in. Like I drink two or three glasses of wine in a sitting. And then every once in a while I would let it go and drink the way I drank. But but most of that six years, really, I was trying to prove that I wasn't, that I did had not, I didn't have a seat in those rooms, those rooms. Yeah, I wish I could drink like normal people. I do it all the time, yeah. right? <laughs> that's a, that's a, a great recovery. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I could drink like normal people. I do it all the time, every day. <laughs> you know, totally. We just, we just can't. We cannot. We cannot, but that. And that's worse than not drinking, isn't it? Oh, White it was so, oh. That was the thing that convinced me I was an alcoholic because I thought about, it was the first thing I thought about in the morning and the last thing I thought about at night. I thought about it all day long. I'm scheming up in my head. I'm so far up in my head. I was in another town. You know, it's like, okay, I had two glasses of wine yesterday. Will anybody notice if I have three today? And it's like this chat. Don't eat. It'll hit me harder. I'm waiting right. to have them all back to back to back. So oh I get my a little gosh. Pop. Yeah. 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 It was insane. And I had, you know, we had three kids. I had a career. It was, I was, I had this marriage and it was like 
chaos. And for me, I mean, outwardly, you couldn't tell as much. But Kenny could, and he, poor guy, he was, he's, you know, he's, he was trying very hard to stay in his own lane, but he would say stuff to me like, you know, this, I, I, I don't think that you, um, you're one of those people that should be drinking. I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> and that would antagonize me so much. I would you're just get enraged. <laughs> I know. I'd say, what are you talking about? Look at, when have I, I didn't, I never, I wasn't, you know, it just this, I just, just hit him with both barrels and He'd say, okay. It's so sweet that he would put it like that. Well, yeah, I know. But I, and he's probably thinking my life is going straight to hell. <laughs> and, you know, it's, but it was Where what it was. Were you involved in Christian music at this time? Is it Christian? Or were, uh, you, well, were you still doing it? I mean, when was so the merger? Cause I, yeah, I was kind of in, I had started to migrate over into Christian music. So that it was those also. Those fans can be brutal. It was well, they didn't want me anyway. I mean, they just, it's <laughs> You're like, a rebel no matter where you are. Was, I love that. I know. Yeah, I never great. fit in that industry. It's just that I, once I was, I got married, I didn't care about writing about forsaken love songs anymore. I just thought I really want to explore it, faith because I wanted to try and know something about this God who was so kind to me and generous. And I didn't. So for me, that was the playing field as a writer. But. And honestly, for me, that's the Christian music I want to hear. Right. Hopefully, well, the Grammy board felt the same way because you, you got those, but I, I want to hear someone that's broken, fixed and wants to sing. I just something, there's something contrived about a portion of the Christian music industry. I was raised having to play Christian music because we weren't allowed right. to listen to secular music. Right. Oh, that'll make you hate something. You know, I just, well, yeah, and so many of the Christian artists were so polished and and so kind of squeaky clean. It's like I can't, like I'm still broken. I I don't think I'm ever going to be fixed in this world. But that's the that interesting. Way, anyway. That's yeah. no, but that's kind of the interesting thing. So, but it kind of played into this whole this whole narrative that I'm kidding myself with. Like, you know, I. You know, I can handle this. I can drink. And so just to prove it to you, I'm going to have a really extensive devotional life. Like I'm going to spend an hour with the Lord every morning, which which I kind of started doing. But every once in a while, I would feel like, you know, just that, that once again, that the, the voice of God or the spirit of God or however you want to frame that would just speak speak to me so clearly and say, why don't you give me the drink? Mm. And it's like, mind your own business. <laughs> Can't you see that I'm managing here? Can't you see how well I'm doing? You know, I it's wanted like, your will this morning. It's, it's fine. <laughs> so, and, and at one point, you know, that happened more than once. And thank God I was doing all this massive pretense and the devotional thing was part of that because one morning I heard it again. And finally I said, look, I know I'm an alcoholic. I'm not stupid. I'm, I know that. I know this thing will never get better, only worse, but I'm, 
I'm telling you now, I cannot face my life without it because I don't, there's some kind of hollow, cold place in me that I don't, I don't know what to do with. I, I, I don't know, you know? And, and I said, however, <laughs> if the drink is so important to you, you can give me the will to do it because I don't have it. I'm not going to have it. I, you know, that's not something I'm going to be able to come you're up kind with. You're kind of, you're aware of, of 12 I'm steps. totally, you're, I, you're by in, that the point, I, the obsession was very clear. You had the head me. full of AA and the belly full of alcohol. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so you yeah. know enough to know there was, okay. I just wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I knew, I knew, and I think I knew all along. I just wasn't ready yeah. to, I mean, there's readiness and readiness and, but I just, but but, you know, and I didn't even ask for the willingness. I just said, if it's such a big deal to you, you're going to have to supply it. That's and we'll leave it at that. And one day, you know, I don't I have no idea how long after that it was. It wasn't like right after it. But one day and the thing about the day was it was like this incredibly ordinary day. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of alcoholic that goes to jail and I had not been to jail. I had not blown up a work relationship or personal relationship. I hadn't done something I couldn't take back. I, you know, it was just a regular ordinary day. I got up and went to an AA meeting and it's like, and it was like these little old ladies over at um, St. Henry's Catholic Church. And there were about five of them. And, and, I, and they were so sweet. And I just told them my story. And one of them said, well, you better go to 40 meetings in 40 days. And I thought, 40 meetings in 40 days? I thought it was 30 and 30 or 90 and 90. And she said, it does not matter. Just get to them meetings. <laughs> and I, and I, so I did 30 and 30. And that changed everything. Because by the end of that, I'd picked a home group. I had a sponsor. But more than anything else, I just said, okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll do what they suggest. You win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like, I'll just do. And, and for me, you know, the step work has become kind of the crown jewel of what God's given me in that whole thing. It's just. You can kind of get as much out of this thing as you want. Like I did, I did a lot of years of, of cruise control. I did not go to 30 and 30 or 90 and 90. I went to this Cumberland Heights outpatient thing. And I'm like, I'm going to three meetings a week. I, I still had my middle finger out. I was special because if, if you've learned how to play three chords on a guitar, you are a little bit better than everybody else on earth and worse than everyone too. It's ridiculous. And I just was not going to do 30 meetings in 30 days. I'm not, you know, it's funny in hindsight, I'm a much worse alcoholic than I thought I was at the time, <laughs> much worse addict. You know, I'm like, I'm doing this because I know I should, but yeah. I haven't run it off the rails yeah. yet. So you go from being a, a full-time drinker to a full-time asshole. And it's yeah. just, you know, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. And, and There's that period. Just, just that, I mean, <laughs> it took me so long to get, like, I did the steps real fast with a sponsor 
And then I kind of excused him because I had graduated from, you know, and right. I'm still going to yeah. go away one day a week. And I didn't want to sponsor or sponsees because it all seemed like too much work. And honestly, there's a few AA Nazis out there that just make you feel bad about everything because they know every page number, uh, the, yes. the, everything's memorized. And by the way, it's the same kind of response I had towards people that knew the Bible really well when I was growing up. So truth is, I'm a rebellious asshole. And there are people that want to offer me help. And I resist it because I think they're condescending me. Um, Funny how you don't like to get disrespected at all, but I haven't done anything to earn anyone's respect. But I remember those that that 30 and 30, 90, 90. I'm like, it's possible, it's impossible. And now I'm the one telling people to do that because you can get as much as you want. It took me probably six, seven years in this to start really getting the benefits, which was really not just doing the steps, but it's doing them as a sponsor with someone else. So you feel a little bit more responsibility. I better dig in and and figure out what this means. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty miraculous. Uh, it's so miraculous and we are who we are, where we are, when we're there, you know, it's like, we just bring our whole selves to it. And some of us get it sooner. Some of us get it later, but it's like, we just, it becomes our story. And without it, I mean, I, you you probably know, but you have a you have a large impact on people. There, there have been I, I've I've seen it in rooms. I've seen it myself, um, and I know that I, I'm able to have some impact somewhere that wouldn't be there without my story, and um, and without my son's story. Like it it also helps me to like I always had to tell my my wife, my non alcoholic wife, you can't take this personally. This is a great kid. It is the person that you know. The disease is what's freaking you out. The disease is what's lying and not showing up. And um, that's a tough one, but it does give you an understanding. And if I wasn't an alcoholic, I would have no grace for other people. I I'm, I still struggle with it because now I can be condescending about the drunk guy. You know, like, wait, you were that guy. And um, I was going to ask you about your, your daughter because I know that you've had I mean, it's, 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 yes. I know having a, a a kid with the same disease is like, it's talk about powerless. We talk about powerless. You can't decide for them. Oh God. There, it is just, it is the worst. And it is the worst thing for any parent, any time. But when you have been, inflicting your own illness on that child unwillingly but there it is you know I mean she uh she was the baby I had you know uh, by myself and I was all she had and and I was not um sober for some of that and I didn't get sober till she was like hmm well, she's almost 40, so it was a while, mm -hmm. you know. So she was like 15 mm -hmm. when I got sober. So that's a lot of, um, you know, there were seven good years in there. But even then, you know, it took me a while to, to, to learn how to live. So I have to say that was brutal. And she went for it. You know, it it can really accelerate down through the generations too. So yes. I thought, it, you know, I thought I was pretty hardcore, but she 
she beat me in that department and went for it in a way where by the time she was in eighth grade, we had to start putting her in lockdowns. And, you know, she was very beautiful and sneaking out with adults. And um, it was terrifying. It really was. And long before she started, drug, she was not a drinker. She she was a drug user. But long before she even started using drugs, that I mean, you could see the illness so clearly. I knew about my son when he was 10. I told my wife, I said, he has the ism. Yes. This kid is, and he's the sweetest and most loyal and whatever. And and he's also frustrated and impatient. And I, I, it's almost hard to describe, but you understand. So I totally get that. Long before, I mean, he was 10 years old. And I'm like, no, he. Yeah, we're going to have to watch this. Yes, you see it coming in a way that, you know, and, and so you like we had her in all kinds of therapeutic situations and we're trying to get outside lots of support she had. And she was one of those people that like people loved her. So there's that part too. I mean, it's like you go into an AA meeting and you realize in some ways you're among some of the best and brightest oh, yeah. people that exist. And they are definitely, you know, we belong to a club we don't want to belong to, but yet when you get in there, you just think, oh, that's not bad. Oh, yeah. No, I, I do want to belong. <laughs> I do now. I'm actually Absolutely. grateful to have yes. been to be an alcoholic. And yeah. some people disagree with that, but I need this. I need yeah. all of it. Um, I, I would just be an unrecovering asshole right, without right, it. Right, right. So, you know, she had so much support. Kenny adopted her when we got married. He loved her. And... But she was she she had her destiny. And so I think, you know, she just started rolling. She never really after eighth grade, it, you know, we would take her to a lockdown. She'd do really, really well. We'd bring her back, put her back in school. And within six months, she was, you know, gone again it, with and we just couldn't. We had two small children. It was just her, it was a nightmare. So we took her back to the same place and we'd bring her back and away she'd go. And then finally, you know, and she would, she eventually landed in San Francisco and, and Becca's always, you know, she's always found men to sort of enable and take care of her. And, and they're generally the, the probably the worst possible candidates to have a relationship sure. with. So they're destructive and hurtful. And, um, but we just wouldn't hear from her for years. And, uh, at one point, you know, and then she'd surface, she went to treatment, you know, like she'd surface, she'd go to treatment. And by then I, I had become super active in the recovery program the way you are and you start to know people and, and people want to help you. And, and, and there are, so uh, there was no shortage of opportunity for her to go to treatment. I mean, people would do it gratis. They would do, you know, they would just off. And so there was always an opportunity for her to get help, but I was at the helm. 
I was putting it together. I was the planner. I was the expediter. She hated so that, it was didn't she? my well, no, oh. it wasn't that she hated it. She'd go willingly, but it would belong to me. It was not her deal. So when she was done, she'd go back to her life and think she could, you know, and I think there was some small desire or thought, oh, this will translate. I can, I can go back and do what I was doing and I'll, I can still keep it together. But it, we know that it doesn't work that way. So that just went on and on and on and on. And then when she was about 15 or when I was about 15 years sober, um, she called me from San Francisco and said, I'm going into a detox unit for heroin. And prior to that, I'd, she was a meth addict. And I had no idea she was using heroin. And um, so she said, well, I want you to come out here and help me get into a halfway house. And I said, I'm on my way. <laughs> and poor Kenny, once again, Poor Kenny. Goes, <laughs> I really think you need to let her do this on her own. She's an adult. This is not your issue. My baby needs me. What are you talking about? I'm, you know, I'll move heaven and earth. She asked me to come, you know, butt out once again. I mean, that's a common theme for me. Yeah. But. It's all natural instinct, of course. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I mean, so I fly to San Francisco, I'm staying with friends and, and I guess, it, and, and, you know, and I had the, you know, I had the hubris in me to say to Kenny, it's like, I'm 15 years sober, you know, I work a good program. I, you know, blah, blah, blah. and I said, my, the sanity that I now have will trump any insanity in the room. And it's like, you fucking idiot. It's like, <laughs> I think I was in San Francisco for, for an hour and a half before I, I was on fire, just crazed. Because I was trying to go up against the one thing that I cannot do battle with, which is addiction. I, you know, I, I can't battle it in myself, and I certainly can't battle it in somebody else. As hard as surrendering your own addiction is, surrendering your kid's addiction is way harder. Oh, my gosh. It and, was and a in fact, nightmare. Impossible uh, yeah. to a certain extent. It was impossible. And, and you just watch, like, she compromised me the people I was staying with, like she took off with their house key and disappeared. And there's this crazed boyfriend and it was just a nightmare, but it was the thing that I most needed because like I said, I was born needing Al-Anon. I was born to two alcohol. I mean, I was born needing a drink in an Al-Anon <laughs> meeting, you know, not in that order diapers, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, but I came back to Nashville and I crawled into a parent's Al-Anon. And we are so, like, I know you know this, in this city and, and the surrounding area, we are just so fortunate because the, the AA, all the 12-step programs are so well represented here. But the AA and the Al-Anon is off the scale. I mean, and, and, and the way you know that is the level of commitment to recovery. Yeah. And so, and we have things like a parent's Al-Anon meeting because you and I deal with something that 
even people that are dealing with addicts do not. I mean, because it's your child. It's like you, from the minute that baby comes into the world, all you care about is trying to keep them safe. You know, all you care about is nurturing them in any way you can find. And to have to, at, at this, you know, you have to change horses and redefine love. And it's, it involves a death of self that is so profound. I don't think I was ready for it before then, but by then I just realized if I don't get help, it doesn't matter how many years I've been sober, my kid's illness is going to kill me. And at that point I thought, you know, and I'd go in there and they start saying things like giving other people the dignity of their own choices. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. oh, my God, who are these people? What, it, what are you talking about? <coughs> dignity. Yeah. What are you talking about? We're talking about life and death. We're talking about such dangerous, horrible things here. And they said, there's no qualifier. We don't know. We don't know. We're going to learn how to let go and let God to the fullest extent of that. And, you know, it was, it, it changed my life in the most, I mean, AA absolutely changed my life. This took me to a whole new place. And I, of learning that the best thing I could offer my child and my children and my husband and the world was if I learned how to take care of myself, mm-hmm. which seems antithetical when you're in the situation you are with an active addict, but it also seems, you know, it flies in the face of Christian teaching. It's like you selfish ass, you're supposed to just give yourself away till you're down to nothing. It's the airplane thing. Put your mask on first. I can't help it. And I'll say this in the church where I grew up. Sometimes a lot of people with no mask on run around putting everyone else's mask on. Oh, yeah. That's the old uh, speck in the eye thing. And and we tend to do that a lot. And you don't even, you don't know the ripples that happen. You, You wrote me a letter when Sage died. And I don't know if you remember what it was in it, but you talked about your daughter. I still have it. Um, and it, I dug it out the other day cause I just put it in a drawer. There's very few things, but first of all, no one writes a handwritten letter anymore. So, but it was, <laughs> it meant so much at that. There was a, the day I, the day that I got it, um, it was just, that was what I needed that day. Your willingness in that spot. Like when we stop looking at God as the judger of our behavior and start going, okay, can I, can I help you out this profane guitar player guy. Can I, can I help? Can I do something good for him? And he's, yeah, here, I'm going to put you in the game. You know, you're, you're going to be the, the, the slot receiver, you know, you're not the quarterback because I'm the quarterback and the coach, but knowing that you can do something. And if it's little and what ripple it would affect, it would have, but literally I, I, I'm just, I'm remembering that letter. And that day it was exactly what I needed. And, and you talked about your daughter and I thought, as much pain as in the death of my kid, there is a, um, there's a peace that we have because we do know where he is. Um, and like Casey Bethard says, I have one of my kids that I, that's okay. The other four I'm worried about, but the one that's in heaven, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that one is good for now. And, um, 
you know, just sharing the pain that you're, and I'm like, yeah, I remember, I'm, we had some sleepless nights, you know, and certainly what can we do? And the answer sometimes is just, there's nothing. This is, you know, I'm, I'm barely able to, to, uh, monitor myself, but try and want someone to have something so bad that you would give up your life for them to have it and, and watch them not take it. And, and then I had a year where he took it. I mean, it was like almost a year of sobriety and it was amazing. It was such a gift, but I still couldn't, I couldn't chain him to me. The day that it happened, you know, it was, a, it was fentanyl. He didn't know he was buying fentanyl. It was an overdose. It was an accident. It was a it was actually second degree murder um, for the guy that sold him the drugs because it was, I mean, it's a very small amount. It wasn't like he OD'd. And I would have chained myself to him that day and we would have been fine that day. You don't know what day it is. And, and you can't chain yourself to anyone every day. And um, so I, I just like, I'm grateful for your, your, your willingness to, to like reach out when it was, I don't know if God told you to write that letter that day, but that day it was what I needed to have. And, and that's what we do now. I will, I will occasionally run to the spot I'm supposed to be instead of away from it now, which is really a miracle. Cause I don't really want any kind of discomfort or conflict before I got, to be honest, before I got sober. I yeah. know that. But, you know, that's the thing that happens. It's like you start to put yourself, you know, if not first towards first, you know, in terms of taking care of yourself and being being kind to yourself. And there's a lot more of you to give away. That's just how it works. And but also that whole thing that you were saying that was one of the key things that Al-Anon gave me this, you know, my sponsor said to me early on, she goes, I said, how can I not do X, Y, Z? And she said, what do you know? What do you know about what your daughter needs or even about what you need? What do you know about God want, what God wants? You know, what do you know about really anything? You don't. So if you just stay in your lane and keep letting go and asking God to, you know, show you the path, then you just live your life. And it and stuff like that, where you just think, I want to reach out to this person or I, you know, this person is on my heart. I want to. It just. I've done it a lot more. It doesn't enter my yes. mind. And I'm like, well, should I or shouldn't I? I just reach out now. And if it was inconvenient for you to get that text of encouragement from me, I'm sorry. You have to right. live with it. But the truth right. is, right. no one's mad at you for sending a text saying I'm thinking about no. you today. I mean, and if they are, they probably needed that text more than they know. And and it, it, the perspective change, I always say I would go, I would give anything to go back and live my whole adult life at least with the perspective change that I have now just to not to not have to be afraid of death and to you know uh just to to wear life like a loose garment to not have to be in control of every situation to, to at least attempt to be in the moment I literally live my whole life with I mean parking at the at the stadium for a football game where I knew I could get out soon. So I didn't, I mean, I literally leaving early so I didn't have to sit in traffic. I never was anywhere for like 40 years almost. Even as a sober person, I was, I just was never anywhere. I was on the next thing to the next uh, 
event and just living in the moments. It's like amazing because it's the things that used to matter kind of stop mattering. Like I have Jomo instead of FOMO, which is the joy of missing out. <laughs> uh, I'd never heard that until this moment. So That's grateful hilarious. when I don't get invited to something now. Yeah, <laughs> oh gosh. No, but the, the whole, you know, our, our business and trying to kind of be in the middle of it. I'm just like, I still love to work and I love to write. I don't care about the results anymore. I mean, no. I should, I probably should, but I just don't, uh, I think better product will come out of it, but the, the, the hustle and the, the shuck and jive and the, the show up and, and meet people for the 50th time. It just, uh, it just kind of loses the petty things kind of lose their, lose their power. And I'm grateful for that. The same way. I really do. And I think, too, that's the other thing. It's like you realize at the end of the day, you go through something so life shattering. And you realize none of that stuff is going to sustain anybody. It's human connection every time. So if, you know, and I think knowing what it feels like to, to, to be in so much pain over a kid. I can't, I probably, I probably could not have not reached out, you know? And that's the difference between, at least for me, the, this, uh, beyond the, the idea that I'm not drinking or using, I actually will stop and think about other people at some point. And I don't really think it's, I mean, it's, I've been 17 years, so it's been a long time. And I wasn't like the worst guy in the world, although I had become pretty rotten, um, at the end, but my the instinct to, to actually reach out to someone for their benefit, not for like a connection, it just was foreign to me. And this has made it more like an, an instinct to do something like that. And it's, you know, it's a beautiful it's thing. Crazy. It's like, thank you, Lord. I'm, you know, I'm approaching decent. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm approaching like a regular person after 53 years. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So I'm so thankful for that. I mean, I'm, you know, it's like everything in my life that even matters to me on any level has in so many ways been defined by loss. And I, I don't know how to, um, when it happens, I'm just as devastated as anybody would be and just feel, you know, mad and, and in despair. But I, every good thing about me came from that place of completely being shattered. And so I kind of can't argue with it. No doubt. The worst days of my life were the best days of my, I mean, the, the made me the, the, the decision to go to rehab which was the full admission that I wasn't actually an alcoholic and an addict was the worst. I mean, no, nobody winds up there on a winning streak. It's not like, you know, but, um, but that, that, I mean, it literally I became, but I was approaching decent and then the, the, I didn't lose, losing a child. I, I've, I've said this on here before, but I, I had an agreement with God. You take one of my kids, I'm drinking again, dude, this is not, this is all bets are off. Like you can't, you know, surely you can't expect me to do all this work and be sober guy and then take one of my children and expect me not to drink. And it never crossed my mind. It's the furthest thing from my mind, to be honest, which is crazy, miraculous. And, um, 
you know, we talk about God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves, but the, the, the truth is I've never been more repulsed by the whole thing. Um, just the whole idea of it, it's just kind of, kind of gross and disgusting. And I'm like, you're taking perfectly awesome people and just fucking them up. I am not, you know what I mean? I'm not good. Whatever that is that, whatever that giant is of addiction, I'm just not okay with it anymore. Um, and you know, there's, there's moderation in, in that because I can become the, the judgy jackass that has to tell everyone what they think. But at, at, in my heart and soul and spirit, that was the furthest thing from my mind when, when he passed. And at, at, in hindsight, I look back and go, man, I'm grateful for that. Oh God. Cause I would have been in jail. Yeah. I'd have been in jail. I would not have been, I'd have been in jail. I'd have hurt the person that, that sold him the fentanyl. And I would have, I would have, I would have been probably drunk drive, drunk driving arrest. But I mean, it, I'd be in jail and maybe dead and have ruined everyone around me's life. And, um, I mean, I'm just, just grateful. My, uh, sweet wife, even she said, you know, I would understand if you drank and I'm like, oh, don't, don't say that. <laughs> like after we lost him <clears throat> and I'm like, oh, oh, you don't mean that. Cause believe me, what's in my head is not, not a, a couple of shots and a beer at some bar. What's in my head is like mayhem for the world and, and let me go out. And, um, that's just, that's totally gotta be God to take away that insane, um, desire to do something like that. I really don't have it. Oh my gosh. And also, I mean, it's like a slap in the face of what he meant to you. The only way out is through. It's like, we know this and it's like a bumper sticker, but it's really actually true. And that's the other thing. I just think for me, and I still think, I have to say, I think there's a cold spot in me that came early on that stays. But. That's why you play guitar like Keith Richards. You, uh, would, you wouldn't be able to without that spot. Maybe. But, um, but I also think, too, that recovery, you know, it's, it's that weird thing with recovery where you come in because drinking is killing you. And you're desperate to not be on that path anymore. But it's kind of like, I just came in to not drink. I didn't, you know, and, and, and then the, all these things are on offer to you. Like, and you can learn how to live and you can learn how to have relationships, like real relationships. And you can, you know, and, and, and. Well, one of the things I feel like drink that my recovery has given me is the opportunity to grieve honestly mm-hmm. and, to, and to just and to let things be instead of going through all these, you know, attempts to get around it or to avoid it altogether or to, st- to push it down or whatever or blame it on somebody else, but to just take it and, and, and go. And I'm so thankful for that. I feel like I'm a, um, I, I feel more connected. You know, you were talking about earlier about staying in the present. I think for me, that was a reason that I did not stay in the present. There was a lot of pain there because it was cumul- cumulative. Yeah. 
Yeah. It was all this stuff I'd never faced. So I, you know, I do think what a, what a gift to what your son meant to you, you know, that you would be willing to say, Sage was so important to me. I'm going to go through this sober. And you said a slap in the face to what he meant to you. When you said that earlier, I have, um, like it's have a couple of rules. Like I, I, I have people in my family that drink responsibly and they're, they're fine and whatever, but there's, I have a rule. Like there's, when we talk about Sage, no one's consumed alcohol. That's, it's like a respect thing. There are certain ways that I'm, Hey, you want to have drinks? That's fine. You want to talk about Sage? That's fine. But we're not putting those two things together because I am, when you said that, it really hit me. That is really important to me that, that my life honors what he, by the way, he loved being sober. He loved it. And he took to it like, you know, um, it, it, it was, it was a, it was a great year. And he was, we talked about it. I got to say everything, the things that I, you want to say. And, and I'm so grateful that, I mean, God gave me that year. There's no doubt, but it is interesting that you use that slap in the face because I was like, no, no, I cannot dishonor his, like we have birthday party for him. And I'm like, just for tonight, nobody gets to drink wine. Just tonight is his. And we're going to, and we're going to honor that way. And, um, that, yeah, that makes, that's more important to me than like an excuse. I have the excuse now. Well, you, you should, you have every right to go out and use and drink. And, and, um, I can't believe you're not there anymore. No, no, it's got, it's gone. The desire is gone, which is amazing. Uh, It is is. pretty miraculous. Um, before we go, I I ask everybody two questions and, um, they are, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you? And what's the best thing that came out of that? Well, I mean, the obvious thing to be, to say is addiction's the worst thing that ever happened to me comprehensively, but I can't say it is. I just can't say it. I just, you know, and, and they tell you when you are working a, program of recovery that you'll get to that place where you don't regret it. But uh, I think, so for me personally, one of the things that, um, that I, um, you know, was a real big part of my identity and, and, and particularly coming out of a place where I just, I didn't have much self-esteem was, um, you know, was my ability to sing and play music. And so maybe five or six years ago, my voice just quit on me. And it was kind of on a downward slide anyway, but it just stopped working. And and it was kind of probably a combination. I'm 65 now. So it was, it was like this, this collision of age and about 20 bad habits between me and my vocal cords. And um, I... I could not, and so I went to uh, I went to all these vocal coaches, like the top top of the line people, different ones, and I and I really worked at it for several years, and I intellectually understood what they were trying to exp- t- tell me, but I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't absorb it. I I, I don't know why, but I just and like I and. And you know how it is. It's like not getting it. That wasn't something that just happened exclusively 
in my little office where I was rehearsing, that happened on big stages. And it's like, and I just hang my head and think, this is, this, I, you know, and I would say to the Lord all the time, I, I don't know who I am if I'm not a singer. And, um, but also, you know, it was, I didn't, that was something my husband and I did a lot together. So that went away. Um, cause I didn't want to do it anymore. And then I kind of felt like I'm not a musician anymore. And so I lost my tribe. Mm -hmm. So it was like this, it was this thing where I just, I mean, I, it's really hard for me to say what it was for me, like devastation wise. It was below devastation. It was like this leveling Your where I just felt from the last of the time you can remember is wrapped up in it. I, I have another lost. friend that yeah, it's, it's really, really. Oh, I know several. I mean, now I Some know a peers, bunch. Yeah. yeah, I've got a bunch of peers that have been through this or are in it now or whatever. But so, you know, at one point, you know, I hike a lot. And um, once again, I'm saying to the Lord, I, I am so lost. I don't have any skills other than writing and music. I don't. I, and I don't want to do anything else. I'm unemployable. You already knew that. And, um, and I, once again, it's like, I just felt like the Lord just said, you know, your voice has never been about your singing. I would have thought you'd known that by now. It's like, whatever. And, um, and so what happened was I fell, I literally stumbled into this spiritual direction apprenticeship because I thought, well, I have, I have some discernment skills and I really do. I, I feel like I, I love to encourage people in their relationships with God, which is really at the heart of spiritual direction is just listening to the Lord together and so I did this two-year apprenticeship with a woman in Colorado, Colorado Springs who's probably one of the greatest spiritual directors in the world. And she was had just started taking on apprentices. And then COVID happened, and I was going to this Anglican church over in Green Hills, and I... Um, I told one of the pastors was a close friend, and the other one, I, the main one, I barely knew, but I told them both, I said, look... I've been in this apprenticeship for almost two years, and I have I've, I've got a bunch of um, directees that I meet with online, and so I have that capacity. I think this is going to be rough. This is um, this is April 2020, and so I said, if anybody at this church would like spiritual direction during this, I'd love to just offer it, just as a way to serve the church, you know. And um, and I didn't I had. I think I'd spoken at a women's retreat for the church, but, and I had a few friends there, but I didn't, I didn't know very many people. So I thought this is kind of a vulnerable thing. I don't know if anybody's going to take me up on it, but a bunch of people did. And at the end of the year, the main rector at this church said, you know, we've wanted to bring a woman on in a part-time pastoral role 
for a long time and we have the money to do it. Would you, would you be interested in uh, being here like 15 hours a week? It's strictly pastoral. You don't have to administrate or program. You're just being with people. And so there was this part of me where it said, you're not employable. Um, and, then, and then this <laughs> tiny little yes. And I said, Lord, if I'm going to be a problem for these people, please do not give me this job because I know how much of a problem I can truly be. And um, this is a church. The church has enough problems without me yeah, adding yeah, to them. Yeah. And so oh, no, now I'm part of the machine. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And but there was just this tiny little yes. And so I took, so it's been a year, a little over a year and a half. It has been the most beautiful thing. It has been, and our main rector and his daughter were killed in a car wreck a year ago. It'd be a year Tuesday. And so we have been as a church and they all knew him way better than I did because I'd just gotten there. The church itself and, and certainly individuals have been through a, a profound grief, and, but it was like I was ready for it. Mm -hmm. Able you to know? be there. That is so amazing. You said your voice has never been about your singing. I mean, well, think about and that. then and then about uh, so Beth Chapman is a friend of mine, mm -hmm. and she's um, she is a really great voice coach. She trained with a really good voice coach here named Gerald Arthur, and she has the capacity to communicate it. So, and I'd gotten with Beth, she'd forgotten that, but, and I couldn't figure out what she was talking about. But about three months ago, she goes, why don't you come over? I, I, th I really think I can help you with this. There's, there's nothing wrong with you. And I said, there's so much wrong with me, but, um, <laughs> you don't have to but she goes, well, just try it. And it was like, I got my voice back. I don't know how it happened. Well, you see what she, happened. She there. showed me. So it was like God the, wants you to lose your voice gave, just long enough to take the job. Exactly. Yeah. To, to get so it was like the Lord gave me all that stuff, and then He said, "And here you can go do." Because He knew you were too stubborn to take the job without losing your voice. <laughs> I never would I mean, have done it. That's like, I know, like I had to get my arm twisted, right. you know, for whatever. Right. right. So it was like. Oh, that's so funny. Isn't that it's something? Awesome. It's so awesome. And, and it is so, and that's the thing. It's like, whether I'm losing my voice or whether with all the loss that I have felt with Becca, it's like, we need to know at the end of the day that we can live a joyful life, no matter what. And like no qualifiers, like if all is lost, you can still be content and have, you know, and have a happy life. And that to me is what, is what has happened through all these odysseys, you know, it's like loss is really an avenue to gain. But the thing is, it's like you can't, you can't say, you know, I used to lay on the floor and beg God to give Becca back to me. Just beg him and say, why, you know, why won't you do this? And none of that ever happened, but he just kept giving me more of himself. Mm -hmm. And that's the deal. 
heard someone say the other day, it's all going to be okay in the end. And if it's not the end, I mean, if it, and if it's not okay, it's not the end yet. And the truth is, uh, you're, um, our mutual friend, Steve Lee, he's got a couple of great well, ones. I love one very of them, much. <laughs> one of them is, you're not who you, well, I thought about when you're talking about your job, you're not who you think you are. You're not who they think you are. And you're definitely not who you think they think you are. That's right. And I literally can think if I quit, if I wasn't playing guitar and writing songs, the world would quit turning. Like I surely must be doing this. And the deal is um, the vulnerability that I'm willing to show turns out to be the strength and it's just so uncomfortable i just don't want to do this stuff I'm like god come on you're embarrassing me he's like a parent sometimes god going come on go out there get in the game that's right get in the game yeah that's right my favorite steve lee ism is um he should have a book is oh i know he said one of his first sponsors said steve it's clear to me <laughs> That you have a heart's desire to serve God. It's just too bad. It's in an advisory capacity. <laughs> oh, and I'll end with this last one of his, which makes me think of you at the very end. Is uh, I have to stop acting like I know what just happened. <laughs> <clears throat> and the truth is, yeah, I don't know what just happened. I know that I've been going through pain and suffering, and I know that I found a ton of joy in it. And I found some of the greatest people on earth to suffer with me. That's right. And uh, that's right. I hate that that's how we met, but that's I don't know what just happened. So, training girl. Well, thank you so much for doing this. You're amazing. Oh You're an inspiration. Love you. Great. I really, really do uh, love listening to you well. talk. Just